Thanks for tuning in to this very special episode of Yearness After Hours. On behalf of my team, I'd like to thank everyone who has supported us in our work, the faculty, our friends, and our audience. This will be the final episode of this season, and we'll be back next semester with new episodes. In view of the upcoming module registration exercise, we hope that you'll find our interviews with Prof. Miraso, Prof. Andrew Hui, Prof. Mate Rigo, and Prof. Suresh Kumamutu Kumaran about their course offerings, informative and helpful. Assistant Professor Mate Rigo is a historian of modern Europe whose interests span the histories of Eastern, East Central, and Western Europe, as well as the history of capitalism. He also has a keen interest in literature and the arts. Dr. Rigo received his master's and PhD in history from Cornell University. He also holds a master's in Central European history and Jewish studies from Central European University. In 2016 and 2017, Dr. Rigo was a Max Weber postdoctoral fellow at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. He also manages a podcast titled Capital Hist, Modern European History, whose link is included in the description. Here I speak to him about his class, History of Crises, Europe's 20th Century. The crisis of credit, visualized. This is just one of the videos that, you know, went around the internet a few years ago about the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, and, you know, it just really suggests that crisis is something that we live with, that mm. we have to live with. We have to learn what it is. And what the history of crisis does is to go back in time and to actually say that, well, you know, people thought about living in a moment of crisis even 100 years ago. Mm. So the lens we're going to be taking is the history of Europe. Uh, starting from uh, the early 20th century with the First World War, and we take it up to the environmental crisis Mm -hmm. of Chernobyl, of global warming, and also the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So this is an introductory course into history. This is also an introductory course into the study of modern Europe uh, from a global perspective. You know, as you know, students will realize that these issues are not only relevant if you're interested in, in Europe, but they really shaped uh, 20th century society, politics, culture. Uh, if you think about the Cold War and communism, it deeply shaped Singapore as well. And these are the, some of the issues that this course will be looking at. We'll be looking at primary sources, novels, poems, memoirs. So I have a selection I just wanted to read. Um, this is one of my favorites, uh, written by the uh, Czechoslovak writer Václav Havel, who was forced to work in a factory and he could no longer write in the 1960s and 70s. And that's when he wrote this essay, Living in Truth. The chapter is titled The Power of the Powerless. Our system is most frequently characterized as a dictatorship, or more precisely, as a dictatorship of a political bureaucracy over a society which has undergone economic and social leveling. I am afraid that the term dictatorship, regardless of how intelligible it may otherwise be, tends to obscure rather than clarify the real nature of power in this system. We usually associate the term with the notion of a small group of people who take over the government of a given country by force. Their power is wielded openly, using the direct instruments of power at their disposal, and they are easily distinguished socially from the majority over whom they rule. One of the essential aspects of this traditional or classical notion of dictatorship is the assumption that it is temporary, ephemeral, lacking historical roots. Its existence seemed to be bound up with the lives of those who established it. 
the principal threat to its existence is felt to be the possibility that someone better equipped in this sense might appear and overthrow it. So then Havel goes on and talks about everyday life and meanings, uh, practices through which people comply with this, with, this, uh, with this regime. So this is something from the end of the course. Uh, one of the crucial aspects of the course will be the crisis of the Second World War that in itself was a global crisis and we're looking at both perpetrators who perpetrated genocides and war, but also the victims. How did people survive? Is it only a top-down history where politicians and powerful men decide on the fate of others? And this course will very much show that not really. Crisis was a global event, but people still had agency to change their lives. So this is about one Budapest Jew's memoir who decided not to go into the camps, but try to go in hiding. Of course, he had the means to do so. So I commissioned an architect to make our hiding place as safe and comfortable as possible. He had to take proper care of ventilation, electricity, sink, toilet, and so on, and also make sure that no sign of life could be seen from outside. For added safety, a buzzer was installed with a push button in the building building manager's office. Signals could be of varying length, depending on the nature of the danger. In an emergency, we could run down to the air raid shelter in a matter of seconds, where by pressing a button, we could close a huge iron door behind us, or by crossing the full length of the shelter, walk through another door into a different street. The entrance to the courtyard was logged, which would give us some time for these maneuvers. Now, the author of this uh, memoir, Tivadar Soros, ended up surviving, and his son is one of the most powerful financiers, George Soros. Uh, to this day. So again, this is about World War II. Just wanted to read a poem um, that I also like by Paul Salon, uh, Fugue of Death or Todesfuge. Black milk or daybreak, we drink it at nightfall. We drink it at noon. In the morning, we drink it at night. Drink it and drink it. We are digging a grave in the sky. It is ample to lie there. A man in the house, he plays with the serpents, he writes. He writes when the night falls to Germany, your golden hair, Margarete. He writes it and walks from the house. The stars glitter. He whistles his dogs up. He whistles his Jews out and orders a grave to be dug in the earth. He commands us now on with the dance. Black milk of daybreak, we drink you at night. We drink in the mornings at noon. We drink you at nightfall. This is obviously a reflection on the tragedy of the Holocaust. And um, in terms of how the course will be structured, we'll be focusing on five crisis moments, World War I, World War II, uh, including the Holocaust and other genocides globally, 1968 and the sexual revolution, so gender uh, will be a crucial aspect um, in this class, 1989 and 2008-2016. Yeah, if anybody has any questions, feel free to email me Mm. or stop by my office. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much for your time, Prof. Thank you. Classics major at Swarthmore College, Associate Professor Mira So graduated from the Honours Program with high honours in 1995. From 1995 to 1998, she studied at Christchurch College, Oxford, earning her second Bachelor of Arts in Greats. In 2004, she received her PhD in Classics from Princeton University. Prior to joining the inaugural faculty of Yearness College, Prof. Seo taught at Swarthmore College and the University of Michigan. She has very kindly agreed to tell us more about her latest course offering, Ancient Tragedies, Gender, Politics and Poetry. So the course is called Ancient Tragedy, Gender, Politics, and Poetry from Aeschylus to Seneca. So on the one hand, it's a 3,000 level class, so it's like a survey. 
um, there's a lot of tragedy out there in the ancient Mediterranean. So um, Greek tragedy, we think about this as starting from 5th century Athens, um, an intellectual and social environment that you might be familiar with from the common curriculum. Um, some people think about the about tragedy in 5th century Athens as this public performance space, which is political. Um, it's also social uh, in the sense that it kind of people think about tragedy in the way that it comments on what is sayable and not sayable, the kind of big issues of the society and how it works that out in a, in a form, a literary form that is particularly amenable and interested in conflict, intellectual conflict in the sense of the different ideas and perspectives that are also to some extent irresolvable. So I think that this is a really interesting, it's sort of like staging a public conversation, but using mythological figures and mythological narratives as the kind of characters for that. Um, of course, tragedy isn't the only public performance that was available at that time in Athens as part of the religious rituals and life of the community. So there's also comedy, for instance, which is performed at the Greater Dionysia and other like big festivals, um, Panhellenic festivals as well. So you would be not just Athenians sitting in the audience, but also foreigners. Uh, people from other Greek cities and even foreigners who are non-Greek. Um, so there's a lot happening at the beginning of tragedy that that Athens as a polis, as a democratic polis, invented this literary form is mysterious. And also trying to understand what kinds of psychological, political, social work this form can do is also very, very interesting. So this is why it's just such a, uh, historically, it's a very interesting idea. But the other issue is, is that somehow the questions that they're worried about are not super specific questions about what's happening in their society at that time, but they're questions that deal with the same issues that the epics certainly cope with, mortality, ethics, justice, um, that those are questions that are really important for later readers as well. And it became so influential over time. So on the one hand, there's a historical specificity to the origins of tragedy um, in 5th century Athens. On the other hand, there's a kind of persistence of this form that's then taken up and transformed um, not only by the Romans, and we'll read um, some Roman tragedy and their responses to it, and also the philosophical kind of adaptations of tragedy by, by philosophers like Seneca. Um, and the poetic innovations that that the that take place in the form when you move from Greece to Rome, from Greek to Latin. Um, we'll also be reading some of the comedies as well that are related to the tragedies. And we might even read some epic material just to kind of give some context to, I mean, students have already read the Odyssey, but in, in LH1, but also thinking about uh, for the Roman tragic tradition, which only really sort of takes off, well, there are two moments. One is the third century BCE, when Rome is st suddenly Hellenized and expanding into the Mediterranean, becoming more Greek, becoming very aware of Greek literary models and developing its own literary tradition. And then um, in the late first century CE under Nero, where the Seneca, uh, the philosopher Seneca starts taking up these, uh, these forms again and um, writing his own tragedies that deal with his particular philosophical interests, uh, especially to do with, and they're also like really violent and sometimes scary, but there are other Roman poets you have to read in order to understand what his literary ambitions are as well. So how is it, how does it work as a literary form? What is its historical, political, social context? One of the things that tragedy is really good at talking about is letting women talk 
which um, was not a big thing for the ancient Greek societies. So it's exciting to understand. I mean, of course, these are representations of women, but some of the things that different playwrights like um, Euripides and his Medea and female characters in general are able to express things and do things that a or not do not correspond to females role in society but then why do these playwrights want to use female characters that's another like what's so what does it add so i think those are some of the concerns um that we're going to be looking at in the primary texts and the approaches that we're going to take are going to be um literary historical but also understanding the poetics of the works um, it's a 3,000 level class, so we'll be looking at um, we'll be looking at quite a bit of secondary literature as well because the plays themselves are short. It's like maybe 25 pages per play. So we're not going to read a play a week. We have to kind of inhabit the play and think about what are the different ways to read it and also what's what's not resolvable. So what are some great strategies for reading a play and understanding the genre? Um, and then also, uh, what other information do we need to help us read it in different ways? Uh, the other important thing about this class is that this particular topic is that, of course, tragedy is written long after the Greeks and the Romans, and um, people who are studying uh, literature from other times, people who are interested in Shakespeare, people who are interested in Renaissance literature, people who are interested in... There's also now sort of global... Uh, classics reception so there's all people are always remaking these works and then reapplying them and recontextualizing them and I think it would be very interesting for students to think about um, a to be able to identify tragic narratives and sort of film TV whatever that people are still using these particular narrative structures and generic structures how you're cued as an audience to recognize them even though you might not necessarily have studied ancient tragedy but I think the other thing that's really important is is yeah, what's transferable about this genre. So what would it mean if you wanted to write a Singaporean tragedy or um, a tragedy from a different place or time? I mean, there's a current argument now by a classicist um, who is a right-wing classicist who is arguing that Trump is a tragic figure because he's the ruler that America needs, but um, it will not be appreciated. It's quite provocative. My sense of this is that um, this guy's a military historian, so I think he should probably not opine about what's tragic and not tragic. <laughs> I would take him a little bit more serious, seriously if he were a literary scholar. But, you know, um, this, is, this is how people want to. So what are the uses, appropriations of tragedy in contemporary life? I think you can become more sensitive to whether this is a good analogy or not if you've actually been able to experience working with the texts. Dr. Andrew Hui is an Associate Professor of Literature at UNS College. He received his PhD from Princeton University in the Department of Comparative Literature and is a graduate of St. John's College. From 2009 to 2012, he was a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University. His latest book, a theory of the aphorism studies the ubiquitous yet underexplored form of the aphorism, from Heraclitus to Confucius, Buddhist sutras to Pascal, Nietzsche to Twitter. He will be offering the course Gospels as Literature in the coming semester. Thank you, Prof, for joining us. Um, 
So for those who are interested in the class um, Gospels as Literature, could you share with us a little bit about how the class is structured and what you plan to share with the class and if there are any interesting activities that you plan for it? Great. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show. I'm really delighted to share this upcoming course to the interested undergraduates of, of this college. So this is really my first time to offer this course called Gospels as Literature, and it's really meant to be um, that precisely. We're going to um, interrogate the term what the Gospels mean and how we can treat them as literature instead of a religious text. I guess the first thing I should say is that this course is not meant to be a course in apologetics. It's not meant to be a course in evangelism, right? But we're going to do to the best of our intentions to have an academic scholarly treatment of the four canonical books that are known by the names uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, now, these Gospels have inspired uh, Christians and non-Christians for um, over 2,000 years. And um, I'm really interested in the life and afterlife of these texts and how it has uh, changed lives, the destiny of nations, and the course of civilizations itself, and really how it's part and parcel of our human experience and how it's come to shape both the ancient world um, and how we moderns receive them. I would also say that, you know, I've been reading the Gospels since quite young. I've memorized some of these cool scriptures and so forth, and I'm sure some of uh, our students might be quite intimately uh, familiar with them, but I hope what the course will show is how do we read the Gospels in an academic, uh, secular setting, right? Uh, what is the experience of both believers and non-believers in approaching this text? And I also want to talk a little bit about the formation of the text as Gospels, how uh, they were transmitted and how they were, how it comes down uh, to us. And so some of the interesting activities I'm thinking of are uh, to look at different translations of the Bible and how different translations have different ideological agendas, how translations reflect the values of uh, the translators and the communities in which they belong. I think uh, it's important for students to learn a little bit about what is called textual criticism, meaning that you know there are many different manuscripts that have come down to us and many different received versions. As editors of the Bible, how do they make certain choices? Some of our listeners might also know that the four Gospels are the four that kind of made it into the canon, into the New Testament as we know today. But um, in the early Christian era, or what some people say the Jesus movement, uh, there were more than two dozen Gospels uh, floating around, right? Uh, some of them are called Gospel of Truth, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary, and even a Gospel of Judas, right? And so uh, these are called the Apocryphal Gospels. And at a certain point in the 3rd to 4th century, they were suppressed and they were deemed heretical or they were deemed uh, as this movement um, called the uh, Gnostics. And so we should say there were many, many different communities in the ancient Mediterranean world that were that had different versions of the Gospels. They existed in oral form and they existed in textual forms and they were circulated. And so one of the things I want to talk about in the course is the methods of these circulations. Dr. Suresh Kumamutu Kumaran received his Bachelor's in History with First Class Honours at University College London, his Master's of Studies in Greek and Roman History at the University of Oxford, and his PhD in History at University College London. Dr. Suresh Kumar specialises in the history of connectivity in ancient Eurasia and will be leading the course The Amana Letters, Diplomacy in the Late Bronze Age, which is cross-listed as an HI, History and Global Antiquity course. Thank you, Prof, for joining us on the show. 
Could you share more about your course on the Amarna Lettuce? Uh, so my course on the Amarna Lettuce is, to my knowledge, the first university-level course in Singapore on the subject of the ancient Middle East, uh, Egypt included. Um, this region is very important because it gives us the hallmarks of what it means to be civilized urbanism, the market economy, literature, and of course the very script that we use today is ultimately of Middle Eastern origin. Um, so the Amarna letters focus on a corpus of 349 diplomatic texts which were recovered from the ancient Egyptian capital of Amarna. So this was the brief capital of Egypt in the 14th century BCE under the pharaoh by name of Akhenaten. Now this pharaoh is particularly famous among scholars of religion because he uh, basically created what is the first historically attested monotheistic religion. It doesn't very last very long, I mean, kind of disappears after his reign, but um, yeah, and, and, and he's well known for that, but also because of the fact that a great number of diplomatic letters which were written to his court by his peers elsewhere in the Middle East survive uh, in, in, in the ruins of his capital. Um, so most of these letters were sent to the pharaoh by his peers elsewhere in the Middle East, including the great kings of, say, Babylonia, the Kassites, the Assyrians, um, and, and even you know, lesser kings like those of Cyprus. But we also have um, a corpus within um, the, these letters that derives from the vassal states of Egypt in Canaan, that is modern-day uh, Israel, Palestine, and parts of southern Syria as well. So, and, and the way that the pharaoh relates to these two different sort of entities is very different. So you had a sort of brotherly level uh, village kind of talk, which was maintained with the great kings of the Middle East. Um, whereas, of course, the relationship with that of a ves with the vassal was more of a father-son kind of relationship. Um, so what we will focus in this cause is how uh, conflict was avoided, how did states behave to one another in the late Bronze Age period? This is, of course, not the earliest existing diplomatic corpus. If we wanted, we could go all the way you know, back 4,500 years ago. Uh, but this is perhaps the most substantial and the most interesting corpus to survive with regards to diplomatic regimes and conflict resolution from the ancient Middle East. Um, and, and there are, of course, good translations of the Amarna letters, which is why uh, I've chosen to focus on this particular corpus. Would you mind sharing with us how the course will be structured? So uh, it consists of one lecture and two seminars. Um, the reading, I would say, is largely focused on the primary sources for, for the seminars, but we will also be reading uh, quite a bit of secondary literature just to get a sense of you know the, the history of the period as a whole, because that's not something that you can um, sort of gather from the letters themselves. You need other sources to kind of piece together the history of that period. Um, yeah. Thanks once again for listening to this episode of UNS After Hours. And best of luck to our UNS listeners in getting the courses that they desire. Till we meet again next semester, goodbye.